Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the 2022 Gospel Rant six-part Christmas podcast series, a different kind of Christmas pageant. Hey, look, crazy familiar story for most Christians, but there's so much more that we that we actually know, but we just don't widely talk about that's just really interesting. I mean, what was happening in the world that was affecting that region? But it turns out a lot. Who was Herod? I mean, really? What was the angel visit to the unnamed shepherds really all about? How many times have you heard a Christmas message about Zechariah, that very interesting priest who got the first angelic visit? See, all of these people and events help shape how we hear the story, the birth of Jesus. Oh, and they each have a very modern ring to them. You're going to love this series. Pass it on to your friends and family and church. Uh, And FYI, we are continuing with our existing series in the Sermon on the Mount in parallel with this series. The Advent series will be on Saturdays beginning on November 19th and go through Christmas Eve. The Sermon on the Mount will remain on Sundays and make the Christmas podcast part of your seasonal devotional. You won't regret it. And we love feedback, Bill, at gospel-app.com. You won't be the first, believe me. So today, we're going to lay out the broader, very interesting, larger historical pageant stage, if you will, for the birth of Jesus. Context really does matter. America loves children's Christmas pageants. I mean, I do. I really love them. But they show the story, they tell the story on a very, very small stage, 10 by 10, 12 by 12. It's a snapshot, really. It's a conflation of a lot of events. We put it on a single stage. I get it. But I got to ask the questions. What else was going on in the world as Jesus took his first human breath? That made a difference, right? Well, lots of players got involved indirectly. Julia... Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Caesar, Augustus, Mark Antony, Pompey, the Parthian and Nabataean empires and armies, the two major, very lucrative spice trade routes that everybody wanted and was fighting for and would do anything for that went through Israel. And there's the Hasmoneans, think Hanukkah. There are the early conflicts between the Sadducees and Pharisees that hardened into the polarization that Jesus will run into. By the way, there's even a queen who rules over the Jewish nation. And all of these have obvious dotted lines to the biblical characters of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and and later Matthew and Paul. And by the way, uh, interesting note, Paul, some scholars believe, may have been born the very same year as Jesus. 
I think that's fascinating. Can you imagine a preschool with both of them? I mean, I'd pick them for my team. So anyway, Merry Christmas. This should be fun. We're going to learn something. Don't get caught in the weeds. I'll try to make sure it's information, but not burdensome. Think of this podcast as a really big budget Christmas pageant, mainly for an adult audience. So before we plunge in, many of you already know that the Gospel Rant is partnering with LifeAudio.com with this podcast. That means that uh, we get to take a break to hear from some sponsors. That's right, sponsors. So when we come back, we'll get right back into Christmas. Stick around. All right. The annual Christmas pageant is coming just a month and a half away. It's pure Americana and licking. Look, I love them. Every year, parent volunteers take on the gig. They write the scripts. They get costumes donated or tailored from the last year, updated. You get volunteers to do a new set. Lots of fun for the entire church. The entire children's program gets involved. Casting, it's just not complicated. You pick a child to be Joseph or Mary and the Magi, three, of course. And the cutest always seem to be the angels. Uh, By the way, I was never an angel. Just saying. And if elaborate enough, uh, others get dressed up like sheep and donkeys and camels. I mean, yeah, even though we don't read really of any animals being there, it's fun. And on the glorious night, the church auditorium is filled with parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and siblings. All the iPhones are charged. Everybody's got sugar high from the virgin eggnog or not before. And then, drum roll, and an eight-year-old reads the story as the others acted out. You know it. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, we'll say a lot about Nazareth in Galilee in a minute, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. You know the story. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Look, I love it. And sometimes, by the way, Christmas pageant disasters happen. But look, it's a children's Christmas pageant. What do you expect? There's no more supportive audience ever. One year, our young Joseph decided to pick up the baby Jesus doll, you know, appropriately wrapped in swaddling cloths, of course. But about midway up, something happened. He dropped the doll. It fell on its head, broke the head off, which rolled across the stage, followed by a huge gasp from the crowd. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Joseph was mortified until the crowd laughed and applauded just to save him from stage shame. Look, sorry, Jesus. So great. This account is, the account of of the story is likely very familiar to most of you, but I'm going to ask, is it? And here's my concern with pageants, right? The, The events are conflated into a single moment of time on a single platform, but in truth, the events were spread out over a couple of provinces and years and countries and even three empires, and it was awash with real people and economic and violence insecurity. All had been affected 
by greed and blatant power grabs from outside and inside. Everyone had deaths in their families uh, due to injustice by leaders. Raw alienation, injustice, racism, violence, corrupted religion. Look, hey, doesn't this sound familiar? It has such a modern social justice ring to it. It seems like it's into these settings that Jesus is often birthed. And we miss that so often in our pageants, and I get it, they're for children, but this podcast is for adults, so hang in there. In this podcast, look, I'm going to set a larger stage. I'm going to build up the context, some things you've likely heard of before, but they're going to jump off the the page. They're going to jump off the, the Christmas pageant platform. I want to know what the world really looked like and felt like to the to the Jewish people uh, and the and the people in Galilee, the, the world that Jesus was born into. All right, ready? A little bit of history. It won't hurt you. All right, scholars debate, but we really do believe that Jesus was born sometime between 6 and 4 BCE. So let's say 5 BCE. I'll, uh, I'll say more about that, but we can't be sure. We don't have the birth certificate. But here's the thing is we believe that Herod the so-called king of the Jews in the story, that by that time he was dying, uh, probably died a couple years after Jesus' birth, ending his consequential 37-year reign as the Roman puppet king of Judea. Uh, So he likely died in 4 BCE. I'm going to do an entire podcast on Herod and the implications with the Christmas story. It's fascinating. I think you'll enjoy it. But we're going to start earlier. If you recall from high school world history, The Jews had been occupied and subjugated since the 6th century BCE. There were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the uh, Greek Alexander the Great conquered the region in 330 BCE. And after his death, it was divided between the Seleucid Empire, Syria, the Ptolemaic Empire, Egypt. And so between 319 and 302, Jerusalem changed hands seven times. Look, If you lived around the region, you couldn't thrive in peace. So the king of peace knocked on the door. Invited by confusion and anxiety and identity issues and questions about relationships with God. I mean, this is going to come in play when we talk about the priest Zechariah for sure. Hang tight for that one. You'll love it. Well, in 200 BCE, the Seleucids won control over the the region, including, I mean, it was a huge empire, Turkey, modern Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Jordan. Uh, During this turbulent, anxious season, uh, the place, I mean, think think of a place in in the world where it's just constant war. That would have been Israel over 200 years. The Greek culture was penetrating the land of Israel to the dismay of many of the the old Jews, the Toraic Jews. Sometime in the second century BCE, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was produced in Alexandria, uh, but it gained widespread support in Judea where the knowledge of Hebrew language was waning. Uh, The second and third and fourth and fifth generation Jews were forgetting how to speak the language. And by the way, the Septuagint was the Bible, we think, of Jesus and of Paul. In 168 BCE, the Seleucid ruler Antiochus viciously crushed a Jewish independence rebellion. But he he didn't stop at it. He just went, he took another step and horribly humiliated and even further alienated the Jews by setting up a statue of Jupiter on the Temple Mount. 
He outlawed the observance of the Sabbath, of offering sacrifices at the Jerusalem temple. In fact, he required the Jewish leaders to sacrifice to idols. Well, again, you get the atmosphere. This was oppressed people. This is what power does. It leads to great inhumanity and alienation. Again, a very modern ring to it, right? Well, to make a long story short, after years of political and religious struggles, finally, the underdog Jews were successful at a rebellion against a weakened Seleucid king. They formed an independent nation, uh, the Maccabeans or the Hasmonean dynasty. So free at last, uh, ready to get back to uh, establishing what we came out of exile five centuries before to do, you know, reinstate Torahic worship, be ruled by a Davidic king from the tribe of Judah, and have a high priest, a legitimate high priest from the tribe of Levi, right? Not so much. Unfortunately, the Jewish Hasmoneans, even though they weren't of the tribe of Judah, uh, so couldn't be king. They were of the tribe of Levi. That means that they could be chosen to be high priest, but not king. But it didn't stop them from becoming kings. Illegitimate per Torah, but nevertheless, the king of the Jews. And we're going to be fighting about who is the king of the Jews for a long time to come until Jesus takes the throne. So not only was the hypocrisy and the violence and the power grabbing from the outside, but it was even from the inside, uh, from, from Jewish leaders. Right? And no judgment. It has a modern ring among Christians as well. It just seems to be very, very human. And listen, if you think I'm being judgmental, some of the Maccabean kings even did double duty as king and high priest. Well, show me that in Torah. I mean, I'm, they could have been good men, and by the way, women, and yet, I mean, really? And that disgusted many Jews, but hey, look, at least you know, at least the Jews were independent for the first time in five centuries. It wasn't going to last long. I mean, not historically, maybe 80 years from 143 to 63. You can read more about it in the intertestamental books, first and second Maccabees, and it's the historical backdrop to modern celebration of Hanukkah. And okay, hang tight. We're sneaking up on the birth of Jesus. We're setting the stage. A few more historical events to talk about. Um, unfortunately, in the last throes of the Hasmonean dynasty, you know, around the uh, early 60s BCE, all all that was happening was political infighting, nasty power trips, corruption, violence. Again, very modern ring to it. It ended with a brutal battle for the throne between the two brothers, the legitimate, quote unquote, Hasmonean king, uh, Hyrcanus II, and the uh, who, who was actually a nominal supporter of the Pharisees, and his usurping younger brother, the pro-Sadducean. So here we, here we are, we're beginning to see the polarization between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, primarily politically. Uh, so his younger brother was named Aristobulus, Aristobulus with the assistance of foreign mercenaries and the Sadducean militia. <laughs> yeah, the temple militia overthrew Hyrcanus. And uh, look, I asked the question, where was God? And, and where was the leaning upon God? I think it's a very good question for, for all sides. By the way, today as well. So a very desperate Hyrcanus made a formal appeal to, here we are, Pompey. Uh, right? He, he lost, so he went to Rome. And the Roman general intervened on his behalf, brought the troops into Jerusalem, and it was over. Judea lost its lingering, fading independence 
became a protectorate of a foreign power again. Look, a self-inflicted wound once again by the Jewish people in power. I mean, the so-called kings and queen. Oh, I should mention this. Did you know that Israel had a ruling queen? Yeah, and her her name, and by the way, one of the Maccabeans, her name was Salome Alexandra. But by the way, there had been three female rulers. There's the Talia in 841 BCE, and of course, let's include the judge Deborah. All right, back to our adult Christmas pageant. I guess that's good for Jeopardy sometime. See, the point is that the people, the regular people, I mean, think of the shifts in powers and what it did to their lives and their businesses and how they raised their children, the level of anxiety and isolation and alienation and the raw helplessness. I mean, who has our back? Who would be our patron benefactor? Where's God? Right? And here's where Herod enters our story. Herod's father, Antipater, an Idumean, a Nabataean, um, not technically he's a Jew because one of the earlier Hasmonean kings forced the Nabataeans to be circumcised and to to quote-unquote become Jews, but they were always looked down upon. They were always despised second-class Jews, certainly not of the royal, pure, erudite Hasmonean lineage, and that's going to be a problem. Antipater, decided that he wanted to be the next king. I mean, why not? He was wealthy. He was powerful. The Hasmoneans had already opened the door for illegitimate non-Davidic kings. So why not a Jewish Nabataean dynasty? So that's what he dreamed of. And he wanted to pass that on to his two sons. One of them was a man named Herod. So he bribed the king of the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were a very wealthy kingdom to the south and east of Judea. They had a monopoly of the trade and distribution of the highest quality myrrh and frankincense, and by the way, gold. Uh, Does that sound familiar? Frankincense, myrrh, and gold, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, all from the Arabian Peninsula, and by the way, in India as well. He tried to align with them, that's Antipater, to support his bid for the kingship of Judea, right? Make a threat to Rome. It's a slick political move. It almost worked, but a civil war in Rome broke out between Julius Caesar and Pompey, which ended up with Pompey's death and Julius Caesar having to become involved in the governing affairs of Jerusalem. Big names played on our larger Christmas pageant stage. Herod was well-known by famous Romans and respected by famous Romans far more than he was in Judea. He was respected by Julius Caesar, Pompey, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, and even Augustus. He was called a friend of Augustus. Would it feel weird to include all those people on our Christmas pageant stage? I think it would be confusing. But it was on our adult stage. So in 47 BCE, Julius Caesar tried to make all of the Judean warring partners happy. He made a compromise, which didn't work. He made one of the surviving Hasmoneans, Hyrcanus, he made him ethnarch and high priest, but he made Antipater the sole procurator of Judea. Very confusing. Um, Not exactly what either envisioned, but Antipater made the best of it, and he named his 25-year-old son, Herod, to be the governor of the Galilee province. Remember, Nazareth was in Galilee. The Nazarenes did not forget this. The Hasmoneans never wanted to share rulership, particularly not with the mudblood, uh, in Harry Potter terms, Hasmonean, Idumean like Herod. So Hyrcanus brought charges to Rome, to Caesar himself, against Herod. Herod had to flee into exile in 46. And once again, history intervened. Mark Anthony, again, 
uh, someone else you've heard from world history. They all played a part here in Judea in the Jesus story. Mark Antony came to Herod's rescue, and in the end, Herod was given Hyrcanus's position. But then Antipater died. In a few short months, both Julius Caesar, which we know about, and Antipater were assassinated, one stabbed, one poisoned. That left another vacuum in leadership in the already unstable region of Judea and Galilee. And so in 40 BCE, the Parthians, these historic enemies, always threats to Rome in in that region, their kingdom went from the, it was huge, from the Black Sea to the former empires of Persia, Babylon, Assyria, and Bactria near India. They controlled the very lucrative trade of silks and spices from the Far East, from China, right? Uh, All the way to the markets of Rome. So the Parthians were always looking for an opportunity, and and this was a good one, when distracted Roman armies were chasing Caesar's assassins. They took the opportunity to conquer Syria and Judah, and they placed another anti-Roman, anti-Herod, Hasmonean successor, Antigonus, as the king and high priest of Judea. Uh, So the Hasmoneans were back. The regular Jews, again, you know, is, is there anybody out there? Is, is there a rescuer somewhere? So all the mess, Herod had to run to Rome, and the Romans surprised him by making him, declaring him the king of the Jews, the Roman Senate, uh, Augustus, and given an army to go and defeat the Parthians and to bring the region back, the important region, back to Roman control. Uh, and he was not ordained by God, the king of the Jews, but by Rome. And that's important to our story because really the story is about the new king of the Jews ordained by God in spite of everybody else. So in 37 BCE, General Herod, apparently he was a, a quite a, a, a substantive general, he defeated Antigonus and defeated the hated Parthians to bring an end to the chaotic Jewish Hasmonean rule in Judea, and uh, picking up where Antipater, his father, left off. And by the way, here, look, FYI, is there any wonder, listen, why Herod was so violently bent out of shape when official ambassadors, right, the Magi, came from Parthia, the east, supposedly to do some king-makings in Judea, to come and worship a new king of the Jews, (laughs) right? I would have triggered too. How else would Herod have seen it? All right. This is good as any place to stop for another brief word from our sponsors. Remember, don't run out and buy their products until after you finish the podcast. We'll see you in a minute. All right. You have been so patient. Thank you. We're getting really close to the birth date of Jesus, but you're getting a feel, right? Just how chaotic and swirling and dark this season was. All right. And listen, it's true that Herod, I'll say more about him, he did a lot of things that really benefited the Jewish people. Um, I'll speak of that in a later rant Christmas podcast. But here I want to keep developing the repeated theme that I find in the Christmas story, the real Christmas story in the Bible. And the rest of Jesus's ministry, frankly, Jesus's mission and incarnation was for an oppressed, anxious, isolated, helpless, alienated, beat-up people who would say no one had their backs. No one was there for them. All they were were a punching bag for international powers and also uh, Jewish powers that eventually ruled over them, whether they were uh, political or temple. They just seemed powerless to stop any of it. And when they got their chance, 
the Maccabean, the Hasmonean Empire, it looked like it looked like all the other powers eventually, just with a Jewish facade, just with the Torah as a, as a bat. They just were not enough. They, they just weren't people with real honor. They didn't have a savior, a rescuer, until that evening in 5 BC when Jesus was born in Judea. And Herod clearly was not their savior. Early in his reign, Herod the Great slaughtered Galilean rebels on the slope of Mount Orbila in Galilee. That's only a half-day journey from Nazareth. Uh, Jesus' families would certainly have known about it or even been involved actively. You can see Capernaum from the slope of Mount Arbila. That's how close it was to the biblical stage. And look, the the, the rebels just didn't want Rome or or a Roman appointee to be king. They wanted a Jewish king like the Hasmoneans. And so uh, Herod understood how fragile his power was. And so if he didn't have submission, towing the line, he would be satisfied with fear. So the fierce resistant ended up with the Galilean gorillas held up in caves along the slopes of Mount Arbila. You can still see the caves today. I recommend it. Herod's troops were <coughs> Herod's troops. Herod's troops were eventually lowered in chests from the peak and were able to gain interest and violently crush the remaining resistance. And by crushed, I mean crush. And the Galileans did not forget. They did not forgive either Herod or Rome. This is the initial birth pangs of the zealot movement that's going to end with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. By the way, one of Jesus' disciples will be a zealot. He will be crucified between zealots. The, the violence ramped up even further. Fast forward uh, during Herod's reign, fast forward to shortly after Jesus' birth. Matthew speaks about another vile act of Herod that was so horrific. It's still hard to believe. After the Magi left the country, we read in Matthew 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew 2, 13 to 18. And listen, uh, we don't have any historical corroboration of this event yet, but stay tuned. I'm sure we will. But, you know, I got to tell you, I almost hope that it's an error. Uh, But I strongly suspect that archaeologists will dig up something. It's it's too horrific to be overlooked by history. And there's more. Same time frame, just months later, just before Herod's death. uh, So Jesus would have been one or two and, and likely maybe living safely in Egypt. But his family would be affected. Two brave Jewish scribes taking advantage of Herod's severe illness, which will lead up to, I mean, he had a very painful death. Some argue Fournier's gangrene, a cancer-like infection. Others say it was syphilis, which included fever and itching and pains in the colon, swollen feet, inflammation of the abdomen, gangrene of the penis, lung disease, convulsions, and eye problems. I mean, he was in pain. Uh, uh, There was a point in time that reportedly he tried to take his own life. So these scribes, these Jewish scribes, forcibly took down the Roman eagle that had been put on the top of one of the gates to the temple. I mean, mean, really? 
uh, how, how more can you despise the Jews? You build a great temple to God, but it looks as Greek as it does Roman. It certainly didn't follow the, the biblical prescription. And then, then you put a Roman eagle on top of it. Really? Well, the dying Herod had the sitting high priest removed, not the first time, and he burned the perpetrators alive. His last vicious order was to take all of the noteworthy men of the nation and incarcerate them at the Jericho Hippodrome near where he was staying to die. And, and they were, by his order, they were to be slaughtered upon hearing the news of his death, arguably in order that there would be an outpouring of emotions in Judea when he died. Not because of him, nevertheless, there would be mourning. Um, his sister uh, re- removed that order after his death, but still, you, you get a feel for Herod and and the nation. And and listen, then to make the Christmas pageant stage even more troubling for God to incarnate into, Herod's 19-year-old son, get that, 19-year-old son, because he had assassinated his older three sons, Archelaus becomes the king, new king of the Jews, and he was even worse than Herod. And not, not surprisingly, another rebellion broke out. Josephus, the historian, writes, but on the approach... What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Pentecost, which is a festival of ours, is so-called from the days of our forefathers. A great many ten thousands of men got together, nor did they come only to celebrate the festival, but out of their indignation at the madness of Sabinus and at the injuries he offered them. All right, Sabinus. Haven't heard much about him, probably, but he was the acting Roman treasurer in Syria at the time. Uh, He was sent by the Emperor Augustus to Judea to be procurator of the late King Herod's estate, his will, his throne, to make sure that there was a peaceful transition of power. Boy, that sounds familiar today, right? Um, uh, To Herod's next choice, Archelaus. It, like, it just, it just, it couldn't have gone worse. And his, in his defense, I don't think Sabinus was ready or capable to to handle Jerusalem, which was a powder keg ready to blow after all of the atrocities laid upon them by Herod. 
at Pentecost that year, when the Jews ascended to celebrate at the temple, riots broke out, conflict spread out over the entire city. The Roman legion fought back and ended up setting fire to the temple chambers. They captured and plundered the temple treasury, which made the people even more enraged. They besieged the royal palace uh, nearby where Sabinus and his followers had fortified themselves. Whew. Remember, Bethlehem is only a, a short walk from Jerusalem, uh, and theoretically, Jesus and his parents were already uh, in Egypt, but you never know. But and, and probably there were smaller riots even in Bethlehem. It's scary for a young mother and father if they were still there. And by the way, the uprising did spread to Jesus's family home in Galilee. I mean, think Nazareth and Capernaum. Judas the Galileans, we'll hear more about him, his troops raided the central armory of Sephorus for weapons. Uh, just a stone's throw from Nazareth. All of Jesus's extended families would have been affected. A group attacked Jericho, burned down the royal Paris there where Herod had recently died. So the Romans did what Romans do. The Roman governor in Syria, a man named Varus, brought two legions into Galilee and Judea. The first one under his son, recaptured Sepphoris in Galilee, burned it to the ground, and crucified the surviving Galilean rebels or sold them off as slaves. Again, family members of Jesus. Varus himself took Jerusalem, crucified, uh, we're told, maybe 2,000 soldiers. So some have estimated that uh, the quenching of this rebellion cost 3,000 soldiers' life. Many crucified, many sold as slaves. Again, that would have rattled an area the size of New Jersey. And in order to make peace, I mean, I guess an olive branch, they spared Judas the Galilean. That's going to come back to bite them. In 10 years, he's going to do another rebellion. So when Jesus speaks on that hillside, still covered with blood, right, in Galilee, 30 years later, this event would not have been forgotten. And he dares to say, turn the other cheek. Uh, Check it out in my Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, Just spoke about that recently. So not surprising, the inept Archelaus is going to be removed by Rome sent into exile. We hear nothing about him after that. He's replaced with a series of Roman procurators, starting with, we don't even know much about Caponius, uh, the string of Roman, remember, not Jewish, not Hasmonean, uh, prefects or procurators is going to include someone we have heard about, Pontius Pilate. He'll be the procurator in AD 26. And you know how that story ends. Are beginning to get a feel for, a sense for, an emotional feel for the chaotic and power-hungry, alienating, greedy stage of the pageant a little bit better. Judea was a ridiculously important strategic military location. It was the land in between always. It was always a target, not just because it was a land bridge between superpowers Rome and Parthia and Egypt and Nabataea, but it's the place where the two most lucrative Merchant roads cross. I mean, the royal road that initiates in Parthia that controls all silks and spices from the Far East. And the incense road brought all of the incense and precious metals from the Arabian Peninsula and beyond. They crossed in Idumea, Galilee, and Judea. One of the cities, by the way, just a note, greatly benefited in biblical times was a, was a formerly small fishing village on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee. You've heard of it, Capernaum. We know of at least one Jew who was hired by the Romans to make sure that all goods were appropriately taxed and all tariffs paid. His name was Matthew, or Levi. 
See, these were the roads that brought the great crowds from many nations, from many people groups and languages to hear Jesus for his so-called Sermon on the Mount, neither a sermon or a mount. See, it all comes together. So now we can better understand because of the constant threat of some attack by Parthia or Nabatea or some other enemy, Roman legions needed to be in Judea and Galilee to prevent that. This made matters even worse for the real people in Judea and Galilee, as you can imagine. Everywhere you look, there was a Roman soldier or legion or fortress or swords, and they all had hair triggers. Rome would quickly put to end violently, violently, any uprising, no matter how small, any disruption that that might threaten or undermine its authority there. The prefect had that kind of authority and would do that. Um, The later conflict that Jesus is going to have with the Jews and with the Romans as he takes on the role of the Messiah and accepts the, the, the name King of the Jews as his movement gains notice by Rome, you know what? It's not going to be pretty. The stage is set for the Romans to shut it down. The stage is set for crucifixion because that's the punishment for insurrection. Makes sense. Look, Judea was anything but peaceful and quaint. Jesus was born in the middle of a war zone. I mean, historians call it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but not here, not in this region. There was little peace. There was only rebellion and death and intrigue and alienation, corrupt officials inside and out vying for power and authority and wealth, including at the highest level of the priesthood. There was a heavy cloud of fear and general anxiety among the population. You had to be careful. You had to watch what you say. You had to put your head down. It was a very dark and dangerous time. But it's into such darkness that light can best be seen. As the prophet Isaiah said in 9, 1, and 2, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way, that's Galilee. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And that's along the Via Maris, that trade spice route. 9, 2. The people walking in darkness. You've heard this, right? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light birth of Jesus. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We'll say more about that. One more note, but there's so many others. As the Christ child was breathing his very first breath, the Roman, the great Roman author Ovid was writing his math masterpiece, Metamorphosis. It was completed in AD 6, but it took over 15 years. So it means transformations. It's a narrative, epic poem, 15 books, It describes the creation, the history of the world, and incorporates so many of the best-known love stories from Greek mythology. So why do I add this to our Christmas pageant stage? Well, uh, you know, I'm I'm the guy who's running the podcast, but you'll see. Listen to this. The recurring theme, as with all, with nearly all of Ovid's work, is love, and especially the transformative power of love. Whether it's personal love between people or love personified in the figure of Cupid, See, he viewed love as negative, dangerous, destabilizing. It needs to be controlled and regulated. And this love has power over mortals, but also gods. So his presentation of love is going to shape how Rome understands uh, what love is, and it's going to last for decades. And in about 35 years, and in his second and third missionary journeys in particular, Paul will have to address that love, right? 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is Ovid's love that needs to be self-controlled. And and listen, contrast that with the love of God in Christ. 
Ironically, while Ovid was writing his masterpiece on love, so was God. God's Logos, his narrative book, was not 15 books of epic poetry. It was a person. It was a child. It was an infant who was love incarnate and who came to offer love to the unlovable. His love is also dangerous and destabilizing, but not the way Cupid's was or Ovid portrayed. Jesus's love isn't based upon power or submission or lies or who has control over which spice route or empire or temple. His love loves the unlovable. His love raises the lowly, the beat-up, the disenfranchised, the alienated. He raises the shamed to honor. I mean, joy to the world, right? And that's what began to happen in 5 BCE. Theologian John Barclay in his book, Paul and the Power of Grace, says it so well. He speaks of grace, but that includes and encompasses this love that God wrote in Bethlehem to alienated and fearful people. Here we go. Quote, the gift of Christ was the definitive act of divine grace and was an incongruous gift given without regard to worth. Boy, listen, uh, that's great news to the Jews who've been pawns for centuries, alienated, oppressed, beat up. All right, back to Barclay. Quote, because this gift did not fit with previous criteria of value. <laughs> oh man, let me make another point. Let me think wealthy or powerful or from this or that lineage, Hasmonean, Nabataean, Roman, Parthian. All right, back to Barclay. Quote, the Christ event has recalibrated all systems of worth, including the righteousness defined by the law. Listen, God's love and favor, to use a Roman idiom, to become the friend of the emperor, in this case, not Augustus, but God, what what Barclay is saying and what the Bible is saying is it's no longer a function of your status, your race, your sex, your citizenship, your sexuality, anything else. His love loves the unlovable. In fact, and here's Barclay again, quote, Paul, we shall see, had an unusual, creative, and socially radical understanding of the grace of God arising from the gift, Christ. Whereas good gifts were and still are normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, and by the way, I'm going to say more when we get to the podcast on Herod, but he spent a fortune, many fortunes, trying to earn the favor and honor of being a great king on a great stage. All right, back to Barclay. Quote, Paul took the Christ gift the ultimate gift of God to the world to be given without regard to worth. And in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipient, but created it. Man, what good news for the people of Judea and Galilee and Parthia and Idumea and Nabataea and Rome and beyond. So listen, the birth of the Christ child and the love and grace he brings to all who follow, it turns out, is not an idea or a thing, a philosophy. Instead, it's a radical divine dynamic that actually changes people. It honors, shames people. So the stage is set. There was so much negative and destructive history between just about everybody involved. The, the mistrust and alienation and suspicion and cynicism was, was palpable in the region, In a few decades in Galilee, the heart of the Jewish independence movement, in the heart of the place where so many men and women and boys and girls were slaughtered by Herod and by Rome and others, Jesus will look into the eyes, the weary, beat-up, discounted, shamed eyes of real people from all over this region, Jews and Gentiles, and say, blessed are the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heavens, right? Better than the kingdom of the Jews or kingdom of Rome or kingdom of Parthia, it's yours. How can he say that? 
Well, because he's come as the final new legit king of the Jews, and he has the celestial power to proclaim something like that. Many of them apparently believed him. I mean, I have. Their rescuer has come at last, and the door, this door is huge. It's open for Jews and Nabataeans and Greeks and Romans and Parthians. It's open for men and women equally, no matter your name or socioeconomic status, your skin color. The great de-alienator has come, and I'm going to say more in the next podcast. This was a bold challenge to all others who fought for power and wealth here on planet Earth. So, look, we're going to look at some of the Christmas pageant characters in this podcast series, New Stage Lights. There's going to be an Idumean king who wanted favor and recognition but never got it. There'll be the shamed priest, Zechariah, who needed his shame removed but doubt it would be. There's the disenfranchised daughter, an heir to the rightful throne of King David, who finds herself pregnant. There's the nameless alienated magi. Fascinating tale. Don't miss that. And then there are the shepherds who were on no one's A-list. They were unclean. They didn't have any hope of being honored or protected or saved. No, no shot at having a Kingsman Redeemer. All right, more to come. God's real peace, born an infant to an alienated, disenfranchised, shamed couple. Uh, no one's choice except God's. In a sad, diminished hut in a tiny forgotten village in a shamed region of the world, but it was the royal descendant of David, heir to the promises of God to Abraham, to Israel. The world would take note and don't miss it. It is very, very relevant. The, the entire story is so relevant today. It rings true today with all of our concerns for social justice and inequities. As the angel proclaimed to the shepherd, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Well, that's all for today. I want to take just a second to thank the team at lifeaudio.com for their partnership with us on this podcast, particularly this series. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find other faith-centered podcasts. So listen, help us get the word out. I want to thank you ahead of time and make this part of your Advent devotions this year. Okay, until next time, take heart, child of God. Hello, I'm Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we are the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. What we believe is that addiction is not a surprise to God. That's right. We discuss addiction from a biblical worldview and how true freedom comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom from addiction. The secular worldview of once an addict, always an addict is just not true. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, subscribe to Life After Addiction at lifeaudio.com.